You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Well, good morning, City Church. I about didn't come out on time while I was watching the movie. You know, there have been numerous attempts uh, to provide a movie version of Charles Dickens' classic novel, A Christmas Carol. Uh, Every year, it seems like there's a whole new version, different take on it, including this year. You know, a close second for me would be Mickey's Christmas Carol that came out in the mid-80s. I believe that's Pastor Dean's family favorite. And uh, so that's my second favorite. My all-time favorite version is the 1992 uh, version, The Muppet Christmas Carol, starring Michael Caine as Ebenezer Scrooge. Uh, For those of you that don't know who the Muppets are, you're going to understand, hopefully, the sermon without knowing who the Muppets are. But those who do understand the Muppets, you'll get a special appreciation for a few characters mentioned. So the premise of the movie and the book is that this greedy miser named Ebenezer Scrooge cares about nothing but money and himself. Yet, he never spends a dime of his money. In fact, this is so emphasized in the movie and in the book that our culture is familiar with this. It's it's so familiar to the point that anyone who is kind of a pinch a penny, doesn't want to spend anything, hoards money, perhaps even comes across as a killjoy, are referred to as a Scrooge in our culture. And so, in the movie... There's a couple of characters named Jacob and Robert Marley. Now, if you're familiar with the Muppets, these are played by Statler and Waldorf, the two grumpy old men who would sit in the balcony of the Muppet show and make fun of everybody and everything. So they play the parts of Jacob and Robert Marley, who are business partners of Ebenezer Scrooge in the money lending business. And they ended up, they have already died when we come into the movie. And so they return from the grave uh, to warn uh, Ebenezer Scrooge that if he does not change his life, he's going to end up the same way that they are in eternity, which is in chains. So the Marleys tell Scrooge that that night, which happens to be Christmas Eve, he's going to be visited by three spirits or, or ghosts, the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. Well, they end up coming And they take Scrooge on a journey of rediscovering where he went wrong in his life, the harm that he is doing to others and to himself, even in the present, and also the fate that awaits him and those around him as a result of his actions. And so his fate ultimately is going to be a death in isolation. Although Scrooge doesn't appear to enjoy the wealth that he has, he just hoards it, he still reminds me of a prominent figure in the Old Testament, King Solomon. King Solomon was a man who had everything. He was David's son. If you look at Matthew's uh, genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, you'll see that Jesus' genealogy is traced through Solomon. Solomon was also the one tasked with building the temple that was going to house the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized the presence of God. And then finally, uh, here King Solomon is king over the most powerful kingdom on the face of the earth, yet nothing would satisfy him. Although we read about Solomon's early love for his wife in the book of the Song of Solomon, and we, we read a collection of a few of hundreds of Proverbs of wisdom that he has written about in the book of Proverbs. We're we're given 31 chapters of that. 
all that is good, but we see in his life that he wanders away from God. He ends up having 700 wives and 300 concubines, most of which are not part of the people of God, and so they worship other gods. And as a result, King Solomon is led astray to worship other gods as well. And so with this, after his death, this united kingdom of Israel that's the most powerful in the face of the earth ends up dividing. And Israel and Judah, these two divided kingdoms, end up going into exile uh, ultimately. And so King Solomon, at the end of his life, when he dies, everything kind of just falls apart. And so what we have in the book of Ecclesiastes appears to be very late in Solomon's life as he's looking back on his life, just musing on the meaning of life. What has he accomplished? What, what, what is it that he's done with his life? And when he looks back at this, he concludes that his life has been completely empty. So just kind of taking a look at Ecclesiastes 2, we're going to mention a few things that he's accomplished Uh, But I'm going to read through this first, starting in Ecclesiastes 2, beginning in verse 4. I increased my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted every kind of fruit tree in them. I constructed reservoirs for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also owned livestock, large herds, and flocks more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines, the delights of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for all my struggles." When I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now take a look at this list of Solomon's so-called accomplishments in his life that's just mentioned in these verses I just read. He has houses, buildings, gardens, and parks of every kind. He just he was a master builder. He oversaw the, the building of all these great things. He had servants galore. They would go and get him whatever he needed it, whenever he needed it. He had flocks and flocks and flocks of animals, more than anybody else. He had silver and gold. Based on 1 Kings 10, when it describes the wealth coming into King Solomon every single year, if you were to take that amount that came to King Solomon every year and you brought it into modern money terms, that would be an annual income of over $500 million. This guy had a lot of wealth. He also had sexual pleasures, all that he wanted. Suffice it to say in verse 10, he says, all that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. Now, if you look at these verses that I just read, he ends up referring to making something, quote, for myself, some five times in just these few verses. And in fact, he uses some form of the first person, me, my, mine, I, some 27 times in just these few verses. So you can see that everything Solomon has done in his life has been very me-focused. Yet we see that when Solomon reflects on his life here at the end, 
He sees that all these accomplishments that he's done and achieved, it was all futile. Verse 11 sums his thought process up when he reflects on it. He says, when I considered all that I'd accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile and a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. In verse 11 here that I just read, the literal word that's translated as futile is the word breath or vapor. Now, we have very few cold days in the state of Florida, all right? There's a rumor there might be a cold day coming later this week. I'll believe it when I see it. But if it actually gets here, you could actually see your breath when, when you're standing out in the cold. But that when you see that come out, your breath is out and gone in a flash, like a puff of smoke. And this is the way that the greatest human king describes all these accomplishments that I just listed as we read through these verses. He describes it as gone like a puff of smoke, just a vapor, a breath. He also describes it as a pursuit of the wind. Now, I'm reminded of the little dust devils that spin up on a windy day. And uh, as a kid, I would love to just run and jump in the middle of those things. And uh, I have to say, I don't mind doing it even today. But when you look at these little things, they're like miniature tornadoes. And I don't know why I've, I've enjoyed just jumping in the middle of it, because all that happens is you just end up getting sandy and dirty all over, uh, which is why my mom was not a big fan of me doing that as a kid. So when you look at that and you think about these little dust devils, I mean, King Solomon, talking about this being a pursuit of the wind, all of his worldly accomplishments, he was so insightful because all that it left him with was empty-handed and basically dirty. You know, a few chapters later, Solomon reflects more on the emptiness of wealth. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 10, he says, The one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver, and whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This, too, is futile. When good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. What then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? The sleep of the worker is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. There's a sickening tragedy I've seen under the sun, wealth kept by its owner to his harm. That wealth was lost in a bad venture, so when he fathered his son, he was empty-handed. As he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again. Naked as he came, he will take nothing for his efforts, and he can carry in his hands." This, too, is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so he will go. What we see from what Solomon's describing here, as far as wealth goes, is wealth brings no satisfaction. With increased wealth comes increased costs that he has to deal with. Wealth also increases worry, and it reduces sleep. And then ultimately, wealth is left behind. You know, we've, it's often said that you know, we've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul behind it because you can't take it with you. It just stays. Solomon was beginning to understand this at the end of his life. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, starting in verse 6, something very similar. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these, but those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, 
which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Clearly, King Solomon was led astray by his wealth and by his power. Reading Ecclesiastes, you can see how he's wandered away and has become grieved by the emptiness of the life that he has pursued. Contrary to popular belief, Paul is not saying that money is the root of all evil. We've all heard people misquote this passage from 1 Timothy 6. Well, you know, money is the root of all evil. No, he doesn't say that. If you look closer, it says the love of money is the root of all evil. You see, money is neutral. It can be used for good things or bad things. When we tell money what to do, good things can happen as a result of that. When money tells us what to do, that's where we go very, very wrong. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. When we look back at Solomon and how he concluded his musings on the meaning of life, we see his final answer after all of his empty pursuits, when you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, it says, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. And when I hear King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, say, the conclusion of the matter is this, it's like, okay, I'm perked up, I'm listening. He says, fear God and keep his commands because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. While King Solomon is not visited by three ghosts, he realizes the truth near the end of his life. Fear God. Be in awe of Him. Be in awe of His mercy, His grace, His justice, His power. It's interesting and ironic that here King Solomon is at the end of his life, and he reaches this conclusion of fearing God and keeping His commands. When the book of Proverbs, which was probably an earlier writing in his life when he was following after God, Proverbs 1, 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so he's come full circle at the end of his life and realizes, hey, when it's all said and done, it is all about fearing God and keeping his commands. If fearing God is the point of departure from a selfish life, then keeping his commands is the path. You know, Jesus himself said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14, sums it up and says that everything you do will be judged. Nothing is going to be hidden. So what we take from this, from King Solomon's words here about what is life all about, is how we live truly matters. It is important to recognize what we place importance on. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote in a work called The Weight of Glory. I think these words really sum up this, this pursuit of things versus the pursuit of God himself. He says, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It came through them, and what came through them was the longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, 
news from a country we have not visited. You see, King Solomon realizes this at the end of his life. C.S. Lewis talks about this in this quote, it is not the created things that give us meaning, it is the Creator. It is not the created things that give us meaning, it is the Creator. It takes an intervention for Ebenezer Scrooge to comprehend that his life is headed in the wrong direction. After three spirits or ghosts have, have visited him, pointing out the ramifications of his life if it's left unchanged, Scrooge awakens to find that it's Christmas morning and he hasn't missed it at all. In the words of Charles Dickens, or maybe in the context of our movie, the great Gonzo, uh, says, his life lay before him and it could be changed. Scrooge exclaims on Christmas morning, I will live my life in the past, the present, and the future. It's not likely that any of us are going to be visited by three spirits in the middle of the night on Christmas Eve to convince us to turn our lives around. But the Holy Spirit has already spoken through the Scriptures of what is required of us. As Pastor Dean mentioned at the moon service last week, God doesn't measure us based on the standard of other people. He measures us by His standard, and we fall far, far short of that. This is why He sent Jesus. This is why Christmas is needed. Jesus lived the perfect life that we could never live. He died the death that we deserved. And so, we can't turn our lives around. Only He can turn our lives around. If you recognize the need to have Jesus turn your life around, don't leave today without talking to someone in our care room after the service. Like Scrooge said, we too can live our lives in the past, the present, and the future. We can live in the past remembering where we have been, where we have fallen, what we have done, the things that we've done that separated us from God. But we can't dwell there. We have to understand how Jesus' death and resurrection have guaranteed a salvation if we put our faith in Him. He has declared us righteous, not because of our righteousness, but because of His righteousness. When we reflect on the, pa on the past, we are not to, get, to live in a, a guilt-ridden life. We're not to sit there and wallow in guilt over past sin. We are to remember what He has done for us. All that we've done wrong and will do wrong is forgiven in Christ Jesus. We not only can live our lives in the past this way, we can live in the present, knowing that if we stumble, He is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not only have, have believers been saved, we are saved in the present. We can have confidence in our salvation not because of what we've done, but because of who He is and what He's done for us. This does not give us a license to go and sin, live a sinful life. In fact, it should make us want to live for Him. Our actions should demonstrate a life change, and we should spread the good news of Jesus to those around us. This is why at City Church we are for the gospel and for the city. So we can live our lives in the past, we can live it in the present, and like Ebenezer Scrooge said, we can live our life in the future, knowing that we've not fully realized our salvation and what exactly that means, because one day in the future, Jesus will return and restore all things, ridding the world of Satan and sin and death forever. We have a promise that those of us who have trusted in Him will spend eternity with Jesus. He is going, He is preparing a place for us. 
No matter how difficult this life gets here, we know that God wins in the end. His death and resurrection determine the outcome of the war, but we still await the final battle when our God will be victorious. Ebenezer Scrooge certainly demonstrated a life change because we see a complete transformation of his character. This is clear not only from his actions, but also his appearance, his facial expressions. He wears a red scarf that symbolizes this new love for Christmas and and what life is, is all about. And so when we look at this, this is quite the metamorphosis. Uh, and so Scrooge is, is here as a model for us to see what a changed life looks like. He ends up giving an enormous amount to a charity that he had refused earlier in the story. He surprises his employee, Bob Cratchit, uh, with a Christmas turkey. By the way, Bob Cratchit is played by the Kermit the Frog. And so he ends up giving him this Christmas turkey on, on Christmas morning. He raises his salary. He pays off his mortgage. And so we see that his actions actually reverse the trajectory of the life of Bob Cratchit and his family because Bob Cratchit's son, Tiny Tim, was destined uh, to die of sickness and malnutrition. But as a result of Scrooge and his changed life and and him being generous to this family, uh, he ends up living and Scrooge is described as a second father to the boy. You know, it's interesting that the story of a Christmas carol that the Muppet Christmas Carol is based on focuses on a man who is given the chance to see how his wrong choices will end up in doom for him and for those around him. Yet there's another Christmas classic that many people watch every year and, in fact, is rated the number one Christmas movie of all time, according to Rotten Tomatoes, and also happens to be my wife's favorite Christmas movie, which is It's a Wonderful Life. While Christmas Carol focuses on man who is given the chance to see all the wrong choices that he's made and the impact that it's going to make, here in It's a Wonderful Life, you see a man who's given a chance to see all the right choices he's made. And if he had not been alive to make those choices, how it would have spelled doom for people around him. And so when you look at the irony of comparing the two of them, In a way, we can say that salvation came to both of these men, but true salvation is not turning over a new leaf or discovering the true meaning of Christmas or even recognizing how much your life has an impact on those around you. True salvation is the recognition that without an intervention of the Holy Spirit, we are destined for eternity apart from God. Near the beginning of Muppet Christmas Carol, it said, the Marleys were dead to begin with. In fact, the, the line, the, that line of the Marleys were dead to begin with is actually the very first line in the novel by Dickens. And it says, that one thing you must remember or nothing that follows will seem wondrous. Well, here what is meant by this is if you don't understand that Jacob and Robert Marley in the movie were dead coming into the story, then them visiting Scrooge is not going to be that crazy. But when you realize this is their ghost, you're going, oh, this is very supernatural. So you have to understand that. In a similar way, we could be described that way. We were dead to begin with. Ephesians 2.1 says, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Verses 4 and 5 of that same chapter go on to say, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us made us alive in Christ even though we were dead 
in trespasses. We see a picture of this in the baptism. When Robert was baptized just a few minutes ago, we see a symbolism of, of a person who was dead and buried with Christ and risen with Him to newness of life. We started out dead, and Christ has made us alive. We can never earn God's favor or do enough to make it into heaven. Spiritually, we are dead, and dead people can't do anything. Yet God reaches down to us with a gift of Jesus and awakens us from the dead with the power of His Holy Spirit. Let's thank Him for not leaving us to ourselves, but bringing Christmas to us for our salvation. Let's pray.